0: Open your Bibles, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. I believe there are questions uh, that everyone asks in their life. I think they're questions that are common to a believer and unbeliever alike. They are questions about, what's this whole thing about that we call life? Why are we here? They're questions like... Um, how can I be happy? They are the searching type of questions, and everyone uh, has asked them. But I do think there's a predominant question that the church asks. Believers in Christ ask this question. Is change really possible? If, if you love Jesus, if you come to church, if you raise your hands and you sing these songs, and you declare these things verbally in your, in your expression then your experience with sin or failure should force you to ask this question, I kn- at least every believer I know, is real change? The change the Bible depicts, is it possible? Okay? And I suppose um, how you answer that question is directly connected to the battle that you've had this moment or this day or this week, right? If you had a good day this week, you say, yeah, it's possible. And bad week, nah, there's no way. This is just all a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. So, Last week, we took a a little gap in our Roman study to introduce this idea of of, of just why then, if God wants to transform us, if holiness is God's destination for his church, then why is the struggle with sin so pick and hard? Fair? Why does it seem so difficult and why is it a struggle? And we, we talked about God's power to overcome in those things, but specifically, how could God use the stuff we call the bad things, our regret things, and do good things with it? And we mentioned three particular things, right? that God is giving us, and we've got to see it this way, the luxury of difficult choices for a platform to say we love him more than anything else. Even though we'd like to just have it all gone and have it be no decision to make whatsoever, the reality is there are difficult decisions to make, and when they come and they look hard and look like Mount Everest to you, that's a luxury for God to say, okay, because of the work I've done, and you tell me you love me. We also have seen that this beautiful thing that God can do with bad things in our life is that he can shape us And and transform our character. He, He takes people who aren't quite there and have some confusions and they don't understand the right things and they've certainly got some expressions that are going the wrong direction and he works in our life through the difficult things and you know that kind of filing process makes us more a beautiful bride to him. And then the ultimate reason why God doesn't just remove the potentials of failure is that God says he shows off in our struggles. Like God's really passionate about his glory. He really is the preeminent one, and so for the world and for us as church, that when we can't, he can And so there's some things like God's grace to cover our sin and God's power to overcome sin that go on display in the struggle. Does that make sense? And so we gotta see that even though it's a fight, and even though we prefer to have the fight gone, and even though there's weeks where we doubt whether there's any transformation possible, we can see kind of maybe back up a little bit and see a bigger picture of what God might be doing in, in our life, in our story. But we come back to the basic question I started with, the question that I think believers ask. Is real change possible? Right? Is there a real possibility of having us look different? I know, I know that many of you know what the answer is. I know that you're programmed to say, well, yes, yes. And then some of you have enough scars in your life where you're not so certain. Is it possible for a leopard to change his spots? Is it possible to change directions? If you and I are gripped by some debilitating sin, can we ever find freedom? I'm going to give you the answer. Yes. And if yes isn't the answer, then Christianity isn't real and we should go home and watch football. Do you understand what I'm saying? it's absolutely certain that we are going to be transformed. And the power of God has been provided to the church to see change and to see sin go away in our life. So that's the answer. And that's why I'm really excited about where we're at in Romans uh, chapter 6 right now because we're entering entering into a major shift in Paul's kind of theology. Um, Chapters 1 through 5, Paul has been presenting to the church what, what saves a man sinners who are broken in their sin and twisted in their sin and can't fix their problem, they are stuck in a condition outside of God's love and care and salvation transforms them and transfers them to the kingdom of God, how a man is justified. That was one through five. In chapter six, he begins to talk about how we're changed, okay? How we're saved, how the sin issue has been settled, and now how we're changed by, by God. That's the sanctification person. Peace, if you want uh, religious churchy words. Um, In other words, justification is the act of God where He declares sinners righteous, and sanctification is the act of God where He makes us. Righteous. you get the difference? God's declaration is an imputed righteousness, that by faith in Jesus alone, God grants us holiness by the righteousness of Christ. He transfers Christ's holiness to us and transfers our sin to Jesus. We walk free, as holy as we possibly can be. That is justified, okay? He declares it. Sanctification is God over time making us righteous, okay? So let me contrast and compare these two aspects so we really get it ingrained in our thinking. Justification is a one-time act of God. It is never to be repeated again by faith. Sanctification, on the other hand, happens all the time as we depend on Christ. Happens right now. It's going to happen in this sermon. My guess happened later in the car. It's going to happen. God is working in our lives. Justification frees us from the penalty and the power of sin. Sanctification, is, sanctification frees us from the practice of sin. Justification gives us the merit of Christ. In other words, his righteousness becomes mine, and sanctification gives us the character of Christ. Do you see the difference? We get that doctrinally? These two doctrines, although at first glance look different, they're connected Forever. They come as a package deal. In fact, we've said it this way. God never saves anybody. He doesn't also transform. If you've got a Christian out there who says, I love Jesus, and they've seen no change in their life, I'm telling you, they're confused. It isn't true. God doesn't save people. He also doesn't work on in their life. And so that's where we pick up Romans 6. That's why I'm excited, because we've got enough firepower based on the truth that we're sinners can be saved now to see how we can also be changed to answer that question. Okay, Romans 6, I'm going to read the first four verses as well as our text for today Just so we can remind ourselves where we've been in Paul's argument So if you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the text up on the screen If you don't own a Bible, if you kind of head to the back of our campus There's a bookstore in the back and uh, Aaron and his team will make sure you get a free copy from us So let's read it, first, uh, first seven verses, chapter 6 of Romans What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? For if we have been united with him in in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Let's pray together. God, this truth that we're reading right now is um, the essence of life. It's the depiction of what you died to give us. It is the story of how we're gonna be transformed. Everything in this small little section of Romans 6 tells us that there's hope. Tells us that sin isn't greater than Jesus. Tells us that our failures will not be uh, what you use to measure us or judge us. God, we see freedom here. So my prayer today for us is that, God, you'd give us ears to hear if there are Christians today who are trying to answer that question, is real change possible? God, tell them it's true. Tell them that it is. God, I pray that you help, help our understanding, help our eyes to see and our ears to hear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, the first question, the first thing that Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1 is a logical question. And the question goes like this. Should I just keep going on sinning if God's grace is going to superabound over my failures? Great question. And he says, he asked that question based on something he said in the former passage in chapter 5, verse 20, things like this. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, if you're a thinking person, you look at that scenario and say, okay, where sin got bigger, God's grace just got bigger. So the more I sin, the question could be asked, then the more, more God's grace should cover me. So maybe couldn't I just go ahead and just sin like recklessly, just keep going and sinning, if what we're going to get from it is God's grace? Good question. And there's a couple of reasons why it's a good question. One is it's, it's kind of natural to us to sin. So we would have to make no adjustments. It'd be really simple, just kind of go through the motions and, and I'll just go on sinning and great, fire insurance, we get grace. The other thing, it's kind of a logical outflow of what Paul said in verse 20, that possibly if I sin more, I get more of God's grace. His answer to that question is don't even think about it as bluntly as he could say it, as certain as it is, don't don't go there. It's not true. And his reasoning to this is this phrase, or particularly a word in there that we unpacked for you a couple weeks ago, where Paul says, stupid to consider it, and here's why. You've died to sin. And that word died, the tense of that word is everything to Paul's point. Okay? And so, Remind you, again, what what it means. It just simply means that it's a finished past action already accomplished. Now, some have looked at this died and redefined it and said things like, uh, not dead, but going to be dead someday. So he's just using his words to describe a moment in time that's coming that hasn't happened yet. Some have said, no, he's talking about dead and like a progressive dead. Like, we're sort of dead now, but we're on our way to full deadness or Or being dead is something I have to work on, so I make myself dead over time. I work hard to be dead. That's not what Paul has said. He said to the church who believes the first five chapters of made right by God through faith alone apart from works that the only way you could possibly, possibly know the certainty of transformation and hope is that it's already done. Whatever dying had to happen has already taken place in Jesus, okay? So it's a finished past action. And I'm telling you, the answer to the question is real change possible. You have just found the key right here. That word applied to your life. The reality of what he did to us through Christ is how people can be transformed. Now, to help us understand it a little bit. There are three uses of that phrase, died to sin, in this first 14 verses or so of chapter 6. You know, one day I'm going to walk right off of this thing. I know it. It's going to happen. Just (laughs) mouth to mouth, man. Um, The first 14 verses have this essence about what God has done to us and for us that means something, okay? And that phrase, died to sin, is three times in here, twice referred to Christians sinners saved by grace, and once referred to Jesus and I told you if we 're going to understand what it is to die to sin as sinners, maybe we have what Jesus had. maybe to understand how he died to sin applied to us and our scenario, maybe Paul in his in his precision talking about this for us, m- makes no mistakes by telling us. What happened to Christ happened to you? So let's look at it real quick. Verse 10 says this For the death he died, that's Christ, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So the question you have to ask if Jesus died to sin, how did he die to sin? Well, the scriptures tell us that Jesus had a relationship to sin, not that he sinned, not that he committed some evil act. Jesus didn't sin. He was a righteous man, but he was related to, connected to, phase of his life in sin. He left heaven, came to the earth, and he lived among sinners. He came to pay the price for sin, to bear the weight of God's judgment for sin. He came to defeat sin. He experienced the pain of sin. When people judged or ridiculed him or they mocked him, he bore the weight and the scars of sin. Sin was all around him all the time and yet he was a sinless man and yet when he died that phase of his life that connection to sin that season was over never to be repeated again look at verse 9 just to see that's Paul's point where he says we know that Christ was being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has dominion over him That season of Christ's life is over, never to be repeated. Verses three and four connects us to his death to sin. I want you to see it, verses three and four. He says, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is simply saying that our faith in Jesus Christ unites us not just to Jesus, but to His death and his relationship and his connection to sin, forever, never, never to be returned. And the key to understanding kind of the picture what Paul's describing here, he uses the illustration of baptism. Um, and not, not to express it somehow that getting wet or going under the water is another aspect of what it is to be saved. But he uses it as, as an illustration to represent our total, complete identity in Jesus, like new life in Christ. And I reminded you a couple weeks ago that it couldn't be more contrasting to compare the baptism of Paul's day to the baptism of our day. Because the expense of baptism simply said, listen, I'm going to put my life at risk. I'm going to leave my family and be ridiculed. And people are going to think I'm nuts and hate me because I identify with Jesus. It was a complete and total immersion in Christ. Leaving your life to take up the life of Christ. It's not like modern, Western world, Christianity today kind of stuff. That's not what it is, you know, the kind of just add a little Jesus, that everyone has this little shelf, just make room for Jesus in your life. Jesus doesn't want you to make room for him. He wants the room. You understand? He wants all of it. Jesus never came and said, listen, I can, I can help you. I'll make a few adjustments. I mean, I'll come in. I won't mess up too many things. I'll just sort out a few of your problems. I'm here to rescue the, the gory stuff. God wants your life. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, everything in between, he wants everything about you, your, your behaviors and your thought patterns and your work and all your motivations. He wants us. Jesus came to make certain that we'd be his. And when he died, we were buried in that identity. All of Jesus, all of Jesus. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're going, hmm, that seems a little bit extreme, a little bit too far, like I, I prefer the comfortable Jesus. The one with air conditioning and comfy seats, and I prefer that one. Well, I'm just going to break your little heart, okay? <laughs> there isn't that type of Jesus. I, I know you're confused, and I'm, I'm sorry. I have to confess like an apology for the church because the church has presented a Jesus as really easy to absorb. But that's not biblical. The gospel says it's radical. It's like committing surgery on your life to take up Christ is to take up sacrifice and all those, not, not because if you do those things, God loves you more. God just doesn't save people any other way. He takes people and who are messed up and perpetrate, you know, perpetrate their pain on other people. And he changes us, man. He takes that old life and there isn't another version. He wants all of us. He wants our life he wants us to change us into, into something completely new and different. And so what Christ has given us in that death is this union that brings about freedom from the rule and the power and the control of sin, of which my former life, I could do nothing against it. That's what he came to give us. And chapter six is a great description of the hard and ugly slave master who dictated the terms, who scared the crud out of me every time it barked. You understand? So I've, I've never been a slave, but I've watched movies. I can see these pictures of these stories, and you can probably relate too. But when, uh, when as a slave, the master would, you know, say jump, the slave would say, how high? The slave was always listening for the master's ears, always responsible to do what he was told, to live for his voice, to obey every word. Now, suppose that slave was sold to another master, transported to another place, that old master no longer has any legal rights to that slave, right? That old master has no authority in his life, no legal uh, ramifications to force the slave to obey. He can bark all he wants to. The slave doesn't have to respond, right? I, was, uh, I wrestled in high school. In 1976, I had a coach. His name was John Feely. He wasn't a wrestling coach. I've told you this before, so excuse me for reflecting, um, But he was a great motivator, all right? He was a marine sergeant kind of a dude. He had scars all over his face and he spit when he talked, okay? (laughs) So before you go out on the mat, he would come to you and he'd lean into you. And he was one of those guys, either high blood pressure or just a lot of veins in his face because it was always beet red, you know, beet red. And he'd put his head on your head, he would just scream and spit would come and he'd get all over you. And you could hear his voice. Now he wasn't telling you what to do other than kill him. That's all he knew how to say. But you'd come off the mat. And if you won, he'd slap you in the butt. And if you lost, he'd slap you in the head. you, you know the difference? <laughs> I went to visit him. Now, I was 76. I went to visit him in 1987 at Morton High School, the Morton Hogs. And uh, yeah, that's intimidating, isn't it? <laughs> Stay away from the hogs. Um, and I went into the office and I said, is John Feely here. And, and uh, I could feel my stomach kind of go... I got all nervous, you know? And not like he was going to hit me in the back of the head because he wouldn't know, but I wanted him to be proud of me. Now, he couldn't make me run around the school, and he couldn't make me do 8 billion push-ups. He had no authority. He had no control over me. He wasn't my coach anymore. But I remembered. That's the picture of what it is to be free from the domination and control of sin by dying in Jesus and still hearing its voice and going, oh, I better do something with that. You get the point? I better respond to that. Hey, you need to be happy, or you need to be comfortable, or you need to come out on top. And that old voice barks, and you go, well, I better do that, because that's what I always used to do, and you don't have to. Nobody's forcing you to. There's, there's legal freedom now. They have no ability to tell you uh, sin doesn't anymore. You're dead to sin and its authority to live a different life unto a different master. Do you get it? Tell me you get it. Yeah, you can still obey that old master, right? You can do it if you want to, but you don't have to. Sin has no power over the church anymore. Yeah, and that in a nutshell is Romans 6. That's all he says. Now, we're going to talk about it for two more weeks, but that's all he says, okay? <laughs> that's, that's the story. You died to your old master of sin. You don't have to listen to it at all anymore. It's got no control over your life. You are now alive to your new master who is Jesus. He's talking. He's the one to obey and he only does good to his kids. I want you to look at verse five. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's a better word than the word if, not that I'm suggesting somehow that the people who write the Bible don't know what they're saying, but the if kind of implies like maybe. Well, that's not the word here. The word is since. Since we've been united with him in his death because it's a fact. It's true is what Paul is saying. In other words, Being united in his death simply means we weren't there physically. We know that. I I, I didn't live 2,000 years ago. I I wasn't on the cross with Jesus, but spiritually I was there. That's what it is to be united with Jesus, okay? What happened to him happened to me. My sins were there. My punishment was there, right? All of those things, my place was on the cross with Christ. But Paul says just like we were there spiritually in, in his death, he rose from the dead and you get those benefits too. We're united him spiritually. Jesus was raised free from ever having to deal with death again, right? Jesus was raised never having to deal with sin ever again. And and all of that is equally ours, fully and completely in Jesus Christ. Do you get that? Whatever Jesus did with sin is ours. Whatever Jesus got by resurrection is ours. The word united here means, um, I think it's an interesting word. It means joined at birth. That's what it means. Some have said of it this way, that it's fused into one. So if we take the whole idea of join and birth, fused into one, maybe, maybe Siamese twins is a great illustration. Distinct personalities, right? Distinct people, but join. And so they share organs many times. Like Christians share with Jesus, like the same mind, same heart, right? The same uh, strength and the same life that Jesus has is ours too by faith. And because we've been raised to new life, you and I um, get that because he was. And by the way, let me just make this certainly uh, certain and clear for you. It means a brand new life. Not the adjustments of an old one. Not sort of dressing up and putting a new shirt on an old life. He's talking about a brand new life, Okay. Salvation isn't spiritual rehab. It is not just making a few adjustments to your already confused, complicated, messed up life. God wants all of your life. He wants to rebuild your life. It's the demolition of one building and the construction of a brand new one, amen? That's what the gospel is. Look look at verse six for a second. I love how Paul starts out the first three words. We know that. Everything I've just said about the union of our death in Jesus and what it provides in our union with the resurrection, we know that. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Wow. There's a couple of phrases here I think will help us understand equally um, what we've been saying already. But the first phrase is our old life or our old self, which simply means our old life. It's what we were in Adam before Jesus. It is the broken, stuck-on, stupid, can't-help-yourself-but-sin person. Remember that person? That's the whole former life, this old self or old life that we've had before. He also uses this phrase, and it's important to understand the distinction because many people put them together and think they're synonymous, but he talks about the body of sin in verse 6 which is simply the old nature. Now, they're not the same. Old life was stuck in sin, uh, like Isaiah, filthy rags, everything I could possibly do, my best acts, I couldn't merit to God's attention, I can't fix my problem, I don't even know what I'm doing. That person, the old self now, okay, he's dealt with that. And now Paul brings up this body of sin, which is reference to the kind of old nature. Now, let me describe it this way. It is the person... um, with all the ingrained habits, inclinations, and tendencies of the old man. That's what it means with the body of, of sin. So um, it's kind of like that response a slave would have to an old master. That's what Paul has in mind here. The old former tracks of sin. Now let me deal with a couple of potential problems here. Some have said about this body word that Paul is simply suggesting that you're not the sinner. Your body's the problem. Your body's evil. Okay, well, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not suggesting that this, if we just kill this, everything's cool. There is a ingrained behavioral pattern, tracks of sin that God through Christ is working on. So let me paraphrase this section for us so we make it really clear. When Jesus died, the old man died, right? The old self died. The one at war with God died. Not just sort of dead, but totally and completely dead. Paul says in verse 6, we know this. It's absolutely certain, right? It was crucified. And then he goes on and says, so that all of those former behavior patterns, all those former flinches and inclinations, all those tendencies, all the spiritual track marks from all the sin, all the ways in which a sinner flinches when they don't have any other answer to their life, those things are going to be dealt a death blow in time. In fact, the phrase he uses here is those tendencies will be brought to their knees because of the certainty of Christ's death for us. So you want hope, church? <laughs> if you want to answer the question, is real change possible? And, and you've got so many former habits and behavior patterns, and you go, oh, I'm so sick of these. I want you to see the, the power in this, okay? Because your death in Christ is so perfect and certain and finished, right? The only thing left to work on is you're listening to the old master. That's it. There's only one left thing to happen between here and glory. Is your ability to flinch when he says jump. You go, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be angry now because that's what I always did. I'm supposed to be in control now because that's what I always did. I'm supposed to lust now because that's what I always do, right? You don't have to do those things. You choose to do those things. You've been set free from the old man. There's a new man living inside of you. It's just an old master barking out things he has no right or any legal right to say. So, I want you to see the beauty of God's heart for you. And I want you to just to sit and listen. God loves us as Christians so much that it's, we don't even have language to contain the description of God's love for his people. I mean, the words that the scriptures throw around are inexpressible. So I suppose it's inexpressible. God wants us free and he wants us happy. He he knows what's best for us. He shaped us and formed us. He knows what satisfies us ultimately and he knows that it comes with a union with Jesus. And so here's what he did. He wants us so free from sin that he had to kill our old man to get it done. That's how much he's into us. He knows that we wouldn't want it or pick it ourselves and so he killed a thing at war with him called the old man and he brings the Holy Spirit in to get busy to cleaning up all the ruts of former behaviors and patterns and tendencies of sin over time. It's going away, church, I promise. All the stuff you hate, all the stuff we talked about last week will come to an end because the old man's gone, amen? And you gotta get it because there is no hope. The answer to the question, is real change possible? Absolutely, because this is certain. The power of sin has been broken. It's been brought to nothing, the scripture says right here. That phrase simply means it has no longer can exert controlling force or power. It has no guts. It has no gas. It has no authority. All right? James Boyce says this about that same idea. The reason God's uh, removed us from our union with Adam and has joined us to Jesus is so that the sin that operates so strongly in our bodies might no longer exercise the effective control or power. Um. Augustine said this, maybe you'll remember this more than James Boyce, it's real easy. Adam, before the fall, was able to sin, right? If he wasn't able to sin, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in, okay? Our great-grandfather great was able to sin, given the choice, he took it and plunged the rest of humanity into a sinful life, okay? So Adam was able to sin. After Adam's sin, fallen man was now, get this phrase, not able not to sin. Couldn't do anything else. He couldn't fix it, couldn't pull up, couldn't help himself. All of his best behavior was twisted motivations, and God would read it all. And so we got Adam, who was able to sin, fallen man, who was not able not to sin. Now watch this. In Christ, first time ever in the history of humanity, able not to sin. Think about it. Adam didn't have what God gave you you understand? And the reason why we can say that with confidence is because the greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. The power of God has set me free from the bondage of sin and death, amen? I'm no longer forced to. I don't have to. I live under a new master. His name is Jesus and he's good and he leads in righteousness and the only thing left is all the flinches and behaviors of listening to an old man that have no authority here anymore at all, amen? So, That's for us. When we sin, it's because we're jumping when our old master says how to jump. Victory over sin was never possible before Jesus, and now it is, so the choice is ours. Now look at verse 7 as we wrap this up. Paul shares with us kind of an emphatic declaration after all that truth. He says this in verse 7. For one who has died, that's us, church, has been set free from sin. You feel set free? Set free from sin. So that's his emphatic declaration of this being joined with Christ in his death. So I got a question for us as we leave today. If that's true, why would we go back? Why would we go back to the former way of life? I I, I think I know because sometimes we're confused and think it will make us happy, maybe for a short period of time. Sometimes that former way of life is fun, short period of time. But here's what the gospel says. Because we have a new master, it will never satisfy, ever. It's like someone once said, all of Satan's apples have worms, right? Right? And I think it's true. They look good on the outside, but they're kind of rotten on the inside. And every sin expression that goes against the new master going to leave us like that. Wanting. Never satisfied. Short term. By the lie, because we have these old habits and behaviors, but we have been set free. That's why Jesus says with all of his power in, in John chapter 8, if the son sets you free, you'll be Amen? Listen to this rejoice child of God the charges have been dropped the cell door has been opened you're free why would you ever go back to prison will a prisoner go back to prison will a slave go back to his master will a rich man return to his poverty will a happy man go back to sadness will a survivor go back to a concentration camp will a Christian go back into sin Paul says God forbid it the Bible says, God forbid it. The church says, God forbid it. The Holy Spirit says, God forbid it. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God forbid it. i you even set free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your unbelievable patience and love for us. God, I pray that the reality of our union with Jesus and his death applied to us helps us see that the only reason we fail is because we're flinching with the old man, the old flesh. God, help us see that before we fall, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great afternoon, everybody.